The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 11, verse 1 to 26, which is on page 1105 in the Church Bibles. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So it's been mentioned several times that we had a a leaders retreat uh, yesterday and uh, looking at the challenges that we face for the future generation and the heading which uh, you have in this series is uh, a vision for the church. On the program it says a vision for the church building. I've dropped the building for now and uh, we come back to that in due course. Let's think about a vision 
for the church and particularly the local church. I was dipping into this uh, most excellent book by uh, John Stott, a very fine Anglican. I doubt whether General Synod would be looking at this so much today. They might have lesser important issues to talk about. It's interesting that in his introduction, he, he says this, and it rang true with me when Hannah and I, just two weeks ago, two weeks today, we were in Senegal at a very young, fledgling church um, and attending a, a wedding of one of our church members, Bethan Davis, was marry, marrying Senegalese, first generation from a Muslim culture. And to see the challenge there, how the church is emerging with all of its difficulties, but wonderful opportunities in its growth. John Stott says this in his introduction. In many parts of the world, especially in uh, Asia, Latin America, and Africa, the church is growing rapidly. Although its growth is in size rather than in depth, there is much superficiality of discipleship everywhere. Nevertheless, it is growing. In other parts of the world, however, especially in the West, it's us here today, if I may generalize, the church is not growing. Its development is stunted. Its waters are stagnant. Its breath is still. It is in a state not of renewal, but of decay. Now, I don't think he's being uh, depressed about it, just a sense of realism as to where the church is in many parts of Britain today. There are significant areas of growth, but not that many, and we rejoice in that. What I would like us to do with the, the time that we have this morning is just to look at Acts chapter 11 and try to use that as a model, as a picture uh, for us today and see how it applies to us. And uh, I want to do it under four very simple headings which will come in front of you. But first of all, what do we mean? What do we mean by vision? It's an oft-used phrase. Uh, I'm going to take my glasses off and I can actually see the folk in the balcony much better now with my spectacles off, but I can't read a thing here. <laughs> Vision is, in a sense, the faculty of seeing. The faculty of seeing. My Sunday school teacher was blind. Through the steelworks, the molten steel, he lost his eyesight. Yet he, being blind, taught me many things that stand the test today. So we're not simply talking or thinking about uh, being clever, but being clear. Being clear. Clear-sighted. Having insight. Foresight. There are many role models in history in the past. Those of us who will have read uh, Solzhenitsyn's books when uh, he was ejected from the gulags of Siberia, very humbled by a man of immense courage and vision. And when he was ejected and went to America uh, in June the 8th, 1978, he was asked to speak the very prestigious University of Harvard. This is what he said. Don't forget he's coming from the east. He's coming into the west. 
He said, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature that an outside observer, that's what he was, notices in the West today. Must one point that from ancient times a decline in courage has been considered the first symptom of the end. If the world has not approached its end, it has reached a major watershed in history. And he goes on to say many things. And then finally he said this. It will demand from us a spiritual effort. We shall have to rise to a new height of vision if we are to see a turning of events, whether that's in society or in families, in marriages or in church. Our brief this morning, very quickly, is a vision for the church. And let's try to think of the local church. That's us. Of course, we are part of the universal church. And uh, Andy has been pointing out the challenges that that presents to us here as we are part of one great church. I'd like to give you four words that uh, come out of this reading and allow the reading to speak for itself rather than than, than me, and see how we can apply that uh, to our situation here today. So, dividing the, um, the, the reading that we have in Acts 11 into four headings, first of all, it is a vision from God. A vision from God. It is God's church and not ours. Sometimes the way we defend and the way we live, it's as if it's our church. But it's His And he loves the church and he gave his son to redeem people that they might come into a community of people. Some people think that the local church is a sort of finishing school for saints. I'd like to think of it as a fellowship of forgiven sinners. And that we have discovered in Jesus Christ something wonderful and unique that whatever our background and our education and and culture that that is the thing that unites us above all else. The church of Jesus Christ meeting locally. It's a vision from God. Just let me give you the context so that you can uh, apply it to our situation here today. Immediately, you see in verse 5, Peter is making a reply to strong criticism. Now, criticism isn't always wrong, it isn't always right. You, you, You judge for yourself here. Uh, In verse 2 it says, when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of Gentiles and told them about the good news. And Peter gives his defense in verse 5 and throughout. And he says that he saw a vision that he himself recoiled at and said to the Lord three times, no, no. Yet it was a vision from God. And Peter is giving an account of this. And he is replying to this strong criticism. Some people think that there shouldn't be criticism in the church. Well, I hope that, and yesterday, we can have a healthy encounter sharing our differences. So it's a vision from God because you see in verses 8 to 10, he refused And he resists it three times. This was something that was almost repulsive to him. It's not kosher. Jews don't do this. And sometimes in our British culture we say, we don't do this. But why don't we do it? 
And the whole account here is God-centered. God gives the vision. And God does something remarkable. He deals with Peter. Now, you might say, well, he's got a a pretty good track record. I mean, he preached a sermon and over 2,000 people were converted. What about that? He was filled with the Spirit, but now he isn't. There he was full, now he's empty. There he was receptive, now he's refusing. We are like that. We are like that. Christian people sometimes are resisting when God is speaking. And we need to face that. God dealt with Peter. And God gave the Holy Spirit. And you you see in verse 15 uh, through to 16 there, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning. A second Pentecost, if you like. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. I remembered what I should have known. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so on and so forth. It's a vision from God. And we must believe that God has a purpose for us in this society, in our day, with our families. I mean, when you think about, we think of a vision, for example, surely, if if you're married, say, I have a vision for my marriage. If I don't, we'll grow apart. I have a vision for my children. If I don't, they're going to get involved in all sorts of stuff. I've got a vision for my work because there I want my work to be a witness. And no less so I have a vision for my church. Because, as we know, without a vision, the people perish. It's an interesting word, perish, isn't it? It looks all right, but it does nothing. It doesn't do anything. A vision from God. Secondly, a vision for growth. We've been using this phrase quite actively and deliberately. We are geared for growth. We posed the question yesterday, and it's this, which was in discussion. What comes first, mission or maintenance? For sure, mission, every time. We have to have maintenance. But the order is important. Mission. God is a God of mission. He sent his son on a mission into this world. It's a vision for growth, and that is our mission. And you see in verses 19 to 24, just look at this. Here is perhaps the greatest tragedy that the church faced. Here is Stephen. You read his sermon in Acts chapter 6. It's a remarkable sermon. He's a gifted orator, preacher, leader. He's the man for our time. And he's young and vibrant. And he's taken out and stoned. What is God doing? And yet, in the providence of God... As a result of that, what do we read? Verse 19, those who were scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, the first Christian martyr, take the gospel with them. They would be perfectly happy to stay in their comfort zone, but they had to go. And where they went, they shared, they gossiped the gospel. They talked about Jesus. It's a vision for growth. I suppose the test is always the same, that if we are filled with the Spirit, then surely the outflow of the gospel will be the result, whatever else, to the Gentiles, to those who don't know. Now, I would hope that we would catch the vision in this sense. It's so obvious that you can almost miss it. Look, it's not the apostles. It's not the people whom Jesus poured his life into, the, 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 the disciples. 
and I would sound patronizing just to say this, you know, our Anglican friends talk about the laity and so on, or Baptists say ordinary people, as if, well, that's it, just ordinary people. And what are they doing? Sharing the good news. They're not the experts. Those who've been scattered in connection with the persecution of Stephen are telling at this stage, staying within their culture, Jews only. You see there in verse 19, only Jews. Bypassing the Gentiles. So far, so good. But now it's Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And you see how very strategic this church becomes. I would hope that you and I would catch this vision that we can be used as much as any leader within the church, perhaps more so. Of course, God uses ordinary people, but equally, look in verse 22 here, you see, he does use key people as well. It's not an either or. It's both and. And so in verse 22, I'll just read it to you. News of this entered the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Maybe as a fact-finding mission, whatever's going on there. And when he comes, you see verse 23, he arrived and he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Some people can't enter into the joy of what's happening unless they're part of it. Barnabas has nothing to do with this, yet he rejoices, he revels in it, and he sees that God's doing something unique and something different. Maybe sometimes we might criticize because God is doing something different in the way that we think he shouldn't. That's our vision for, for the church. A vision for growth in spirit, in number, in people. And here's an obvious thing, and uh, I feel I'm almost banging a drum on this issue. Why was Barnabas sent? Why didn't they send somebody else? Barnabas was sent because the church was growing and now the church needed to dovetail together. They weren't just a group of individuals. And what is his primary gift? Well, you, you know, don't you? He's the son of encouragement. And that's what they needed to get alongside people who are often isolated in work, in family, in culture, in society. Great is perhaps the most neglected gift in the church. And it's vital for the church to grow together. It's absence the church will grow apart. Thirdly, a vision for gifting. Again, one of the questions that was posed yesterday is this. What comes first, character or gift? And no question about it. Character, what I am, is, is, determines what I do. My character before my abilities, natural or supernatural. And yet here is a, is, is a vision for gifting, both coming together. And you see verses 25 and 26. Barnabas exercised spiritual vision in these two ways. First of all, he could see what needed to be done. It's not clever. It's clear. He could see what needed to be done. And he's a person of priority. And secondly, he's a servant heart. And some leaders can't do this. 
the ability to involve others rather than do it themselves. And here's another thing. The ability to involve others who are different to him. Some people would rather have the same people around them. And it becomes almost an exclusive, sterile relationship. Far too comfortable. But here will are two strong-willed individuals, Barnabas and Saul and you, Paul. And you'll hear later how they fell out so badly. But here is a vision for gifting. To see what needs to be done and the ability to involve others because we should know that we don't have all the gifts, that we need one another. So, in verse 25, 26, look at this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for. Shock, horrors. The man who scandalized the church was a means of its persecution. He was the one who instigated the martyrdom of Stephen. Barnabas goes for him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So the whole, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And here is a major, pivotal moment. These people became Christians. Thereafter, the first time it's used, stood the test of over 2,000 years. Now, Antioch is a complicated church. It's cosmopolitan. People do things the way that others don't do things. And yet Paul's gift of teaching complements Barnabas' gift of exhorting. It's interesting in the history of great revivals um, that they used to have these meetings and there would be two preachers. One was what was called an exhorter. And he would come before the preacher. And he would exhort the people through prayer, through worship, to be ready so that the preacher would come. Their hearts were warmed. Their minds were awake. They were enlightened and ready and receptive. So it's an interesting pattern that has happened in great revivals. And, and there's, there's a touch of that here. Yet here's a very interesting thing. Barnabas was willing to get Paul and thereafter he was willing to play a second role. Now where do you find that? So much egotism. So much cynicism. So much criticism. But you see, if you really want the church to grow, then you're willing to do that. Because it's actually not about you, is it? It's about God and it's about the gospel and it's about growth. It's a very wonderful thing. A vision for gifting. And finally, a vision for giving. Now here's a massive counterculture, if ever you would uh, think about it. Look in verses 27 to 30. And here's a thing that you will seldom see, I doubt, if you've ever seen it in the secular world. And it's this. That the mother church, Jerusalem, has fallen on hard times. There's been a famine you see there, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up through the Spirit, predicted a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. Verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, disciples there, Christians, church people, 
Each, according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They did this by sending their gifts by the elders, being accountable, taking people together, signing, and all that. Not because they didn't trust, because they wanted to be seen to be accountable. But what is it? It's this. Gentiles having a whip around for Jews. Now, how's that? Have you ever known it? Jews are good at making and keeping money. We know that. But Gentiles giving to them. I doubt whether we see that very often. But that is the church. Do you see, it's so counter-cultural that we almost miss the obvious. And it's a great challenge to us today. And he's talking about giving. That he was a, a, a giver before going into Wycliffe. Now he's a, a recipient of other people's gifts. There are times and seasons like that. What a wonderful illustration of grace then. And it's this. Here is a grace community. Grace makes you gracious. That is surely the test, is it not? Gracious in my attitude to other people. Grace also makes you grateful because you say, this is what people have done for me and I would like to do that for others. I'm indebted because of what I've received. Freely I've received, freely I give. Is this an appeal for money? Well, sort of. Yes. We wouldn't want to be ambivalent about that. But, but it's more than just our money, isn't it? Grace makes you grateful, makes you generous. The Jerusalem mother church, which was Jewish, the Antioch daughter church, if you like, was largely Gentile, though not exclusively. And now, in verse 29, they send this love gift. What a wonderful, tangible expression of the sheer love and generosity of God's people for one another. But there's something else. Here is the younger serving the older. The daughter church, if you like. Now helping the mother church. If you are like me and you have elderly parents, you'll know that sometimes it's a, it's a role reversal. And it's difficult and it's challenging. No less so within a growing church. The younger serving the older. And this isn't an emotional appeal, is it? Giving on impulse, under pressure, with duress. Not so. But it's a heart response. Do you have a vision of giving? Constantly asking for leaders and helpers. Giving of your time. Giving of your gift. Giving of your home or your car. The things that God has blessed you with. Giving it back to Him and using it. We can capitalize on our opportunities. And as we do, we become the people of God. The pe people of prayer and of faith and of vision and of purpose beyond our small surroundings. And we realize that we are part of something big, something beautiful, something glorious. I want to conclude by reading something that I, I picked up recently as a, as a challenge. I quoted just part of this at the parish council um, a few weeks ago when they, we were talking about the building here. 
Growing churches always have a parking problem. Dying churches don't. I didn't say that bit because it was too sensitive. Maybe I should have. Growing churches always exceed their income. Dying churches take in more than they dream of spending because they trust in their resources rather than God. Growing churches plan for the future. Dying churches worship the past. Growing churches are filled with givers. Dying churches are filled with tippers. Growing churches dream great dreams of God. And dying churches relive the nightmares of the past. Growing churches keep the fresh wind of love blowing through. Dying churches are stale with bickering. Now which do we want to be part of? I hope it's the former. And resist the latter. And believe that God has put us here for such a a time as this. This is our day. This is our time. This is our responsibility. This is our privilege. And we need to rise up to the challenge. A vision for our church under those four headings. Work it out for yourself. And pray that God will increase the blessing that he has given to us.